Great. Thanks, Peter. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for coming today. If it's your first Sunday, as always, we uh, want to welcome you to, to Hiawatha and for joining us for, for church. We're glad you're here. Um, we are right now in the middle of a, a series, a sermon series, on the books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, so two books of the Old Testament, the history books of Israel, history books of, of, the, of the Old Testament. And we're at the end of 1 Samuel today. So we're going to turn the page to 2 Samuel next week uh, to kind of get your bearings uh, if you're just joining us. Um, but it's really one book with a one and a two in front of the, in front of the uh, respective sections. And so it's one basic narrative about the early stories of the kings of the Old Testament. And we've been looking at uh, this, this section of 1 Samuel we've been calling Stories from the Chase because uh, it basically consists of David, King David, who at this point has been selected to be king and, and anointed even by Samuel, but selected by God to be king, chased by who is kind of functionally still king, this guy named Saul, who's jealous of him and wants to kill him because uh, he's basically becoming what he never could. And he's being selected by God and kind of um, almost he feels rejected uh, by, by the Spirit of God uh, as well. And so there's lots of theology wrapped up in that that I can't go back into in full today for time's sake. Uh, but at least understand that, that we're, we're looking at these narratives in a way that the Bible itself looks at them. And that is to see them as foreshadowings of something bigger and better. So like um, maybe some of your favorite movies you utilize foreshadowing uh, in it. And the Bible, the Bible's no different. Or your favorite like book. Um, it's, a, it's a classic literary device that the Bible actually is like the first one to do this. It's like God's invention it didn't exist before he said, let there be foreshadowing. That's not a part of Genesis 1, but uh, let's just say it is. Uh, he invented it. And so uh, God, God is a master artist and he, a master storyteller. And these stories aren't just little islands. They're not just here for the sake of a life principle. Uh, they're not TED Talks. Even though their principles come from them, uh, that's not primarily why they exist. They are about Christ ahead of time. Even though they were written and they, and they happened in history a thousand years before Jesus, uh, they are meant to point to him and to give us little pictures of what this coming new era will be like. Uh, this is why Jesus says things like uh, to, the, to some of the Jews uh, when he's teaching them and ministering to them and kind of clashing with them, he says, how slow are you to believe what the scriptures said about me? Uh, or uh, why didn't you read the stories as though they were about me ahead of time, uh, or, or, or things like that. It, 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 it gives us an answer to why he speaks that way, because he's not just all of a sudden appearing out of nowhere, uh, as though they had no warning. Uh, the Messiah, the Christ, was promised to come to right all wrongs and to save the world and sinners from their sins, to reconcile us to God. And these stories uh, serve as this go-between, this kind of interplay, this epochal uh, literary thing where it's, it's meant to foreshadow the coming of Jesus. So, um, that's what we've been doing in this series. We're going to do that again today. Uh, and again, we'll look at um, how this kind of continues into 2 Samuel next week. Today we're in 1 Samuel 24. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, feel free. Uh, we're going to look at gas station bathrooms, torn robes, and the true power of enemy love from 1 Samuel 24. This is a slightly abridged version, so probably best to follow on screen. Uh, but feel free, obviously, to turn to a Bible too if you want to see the entire thing. So let's read this in full to start as we usually do, and then we'll, we'll come back. Verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 young men and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pen along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. 
David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay a hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on, the, on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name uh, from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. All right, kind of a, a classic story here that maybe some of you have read before. Uh, one of my favorites, actually, in, uh, in the book. This is, um, I think you could call it textbook David. Uh, da this is something we'll learn a lot from David, actually, in 2 Samuel, where he's constantly getting this, um, let's call it advice, uh, from his friends and some of his, like, high generals uh, to kill his enemies. And a lot of times David says, no, I'm not going to do that. He, he has this strange restraint in him that is not unlike any of the other kings really in the entire Bible. It's, it's, it's supposed to stand out. And in that way, we'll, talk, we'll come back to this later, but in that way, even that alone, he points us ahead to Jesus and his line who would be a lot like that. Um, but we'll come back to it. So uh, what I want to do though to start is look at this more a little bit from what we uh, often call a human side or perspective and look at it as though it's kind of like our story to see ourselves in David. Um, David is going through Quite the laundry list of, of things here. If you were to list them out, you, you might list uh, he's conscience-stricken, he's threatened, he's given bad advice by his friends, he's hated for no reason, he's misunderstood, he's assumed the worst of. Uh, time and time again, actually, this has been a big thing in, in the book, but this is, it's kind of coming to a head right here. Assume the worst of. Look down on his age. The list, the list goes on and on. Uh, he actually wrote two psalms about this experience, Psalms 57 and 142. We're not going to look at that, that today, again, for time's sake, but I encourage you to, to read that maybe this week if you would like. But those psalms make it clear uh, that, and here's this initial twist to all of this. This is uh, what the Bible does time and time again. 
is the Psalms make it clear that behind Saul lies a greater spiritual reality where it, we, we see this shift. It's, it's almost like twisting a kaleidoscope in the light and seeing a new collage of images that represent something similar, but then again, altogether different. Uh, and we realize that there's a greater enemy than we ever realized we had, that being sin and death. In fact, this, the two psalms here that David wrote about this event never mention Saul by name, which you think would be a pretty big omission if these were strictly historical documents. But the psalms, like the prophets, help to spiritualize the historical events of the Old Testament. Uh, in other words, Saul is not David's biggest problem. And so the psalms say things like, Have mercy on me, O God. Uh, God sends forth his love to me. And he mentions being in the midst of lions and beasts in the cave. And he says, Set me free from my prison, O God. And so David, even being the innocent one in this story, he realizes by looking at Saul that he has his own sins. And he's silent on this here in the story, but you wonder if he's looking at Saul and saying, well, I've chased people probably in my life before too, or I've wanted to, or I've had that inclination in my heart. Am I really, am I really any better? And so some of that you can kind of see come out, at least in the white space, if not the actual letters of the Psalms that become these kind of prophetic songs and help us really interpret kind of what's going on here on a spiritual level. But from a human perspective then, David is a picture of us, uh, a picture of someone who's attacked, a picture of someone with trouble, which is like, I mean, is there a greater human experience than that, right? Just being in trouble. But he's an example though too in that of how prayer is the ultimate response to our problems. Because who can stand in the face of the ultimate problem, which is sin? It's a prison we have no hope of release from. We need his deliverance, we need God's love, it's interesting that he says that. In the face of this story in the cave, uh, he writes a psalm saying, God, give me your love. Like he needs to be loved by God in this, in this uh, situation. And so as humans, like David, we pray with open hands, with empty hands to heaven, not trusting in ourselves, but in God. And so uh, there is a, there's a weakness in, in David here that I think is really important to put our finger on. There's a weakness and a humility in David that stands in contrast to the staff and spear trusting friends of David. And at first that might seem shocking if you, if you remember just a few chapters ago, David slayed a 10-foot tall giant. And so it seems shocking for a giant slayer to maybe say this, but David is saying, my strength is not in me. As a human being, I am weak and I need God to be my strength. And my strength is found in God himself. And that comes out in prayer. This makes me think of um, Paul in the New Testament, the guy who wrote half the New Testament, where he says, I boast all the more proudly of my weaknesses, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So he's not just saying, yeah, every now and then I kind of own the fact that I'm, you know, nobody's perfect. This, this isn't like a, eh, nobody's perfect kind of statement that, you know, we, we kind of say uh, uh, off, off and on uh, in life. This is a, I'm bragging about the things I'm worst at. I go around bragging to people of how bad I am at things because he knows when I do that, then somehow, paradoxically, I am strong in that moment. Everybody else in the world looks at that as a sign of weakness, but I know that, that in me and for me and for theology and for God in his eyes, power 
means to, means, means to decrease. Like John the Baptist says in John 1, I must decrease and get smaller. Jesus must increase and get bigger. I know that that, that is very important uh, to happen as a prophet figure, but also as a human being. Uh, this is what happens to us as well as human beings and Christians. Wherever we are in our journey, we realize life is better at the bottom of the mountain, not the top. Uh, that, that's where we're meant to be, uh, at the bottom, and to enjoy God and be in him and receive from him there, not to impress him with our ascent. So, so Christians should be the first to be able to say things like, I don't know, or I can't do that, or I need help, or I am a sinner. Because when we admit and confess these things, we become strong in God's spirit. It's, again, the most backward way to think according to the world, but it's the power of God for those who bask in his grace and view all things through the lens of the cross. You could say if uh, 1 Samuel 24 was a story in the Bible of humanism, if there was such a thing, in the Bible of other religions, um, David would start to speak in self-talk in the cave and say, I got this. I'm strong. I'm a giant slayer. I was born for moments like this. Who can stand in my way? But instead, he prays and pleads for God's love. And love is the opposite of validation, at least in the sense that it gives and pours itself out for its own sake, not in response to something inside the other person. So it's not, God, tell me I can do this. That's not a biblical prayer, nor is it a prayer you see in the Psalms. David's not saying, God, I need you to tell me that I can do this. Instead, David says over and over again, God, love me in my current fallen state. That's a biblical prayer. Not, God, I need you to tell me that I'm tall and strong and able, uh, but instead, I need you to love me as I am uh, currently in my fallen state and to actually be my strength. That, then, see, then all of a sudden we're thinking biblically. Then all of a sudden we're thinking like a sinner in need of grace. And David here is a wonderful picture of that as a human being just like us. You could actually say um, deep down that it's these kinds of things that help us love our enemies. And, and that's what this story is really about. Uh, Saul actually wants to murder David. And at the end of this story, they're hugging it out. And you're kind of like, that was fast, you know? Like, how did that, that seemed to really kind of shift quick uh, to go from breathing out, spewing out murderous intent uh, to weeping in conviction and uh, embracing the one that you formerly wanted to kill or embracing the one who wanted to kill you. And we'll come back to that and what kind of actually leads to that here uh, in a divine sense or spiritual sense in a second. But on a human level, it's these kinds of ways of thinking about weakness and our neediness that help us to start to love people who we might even consider enemies. Um, and that is knowing we're no better. D David calls Saul here the Lord's anointed. It's a kind of a strange thing to, to call someone who wants to murder you uh, the Lord's anointed king. It's like I, I can think of other words I might use for uh, a, a murderous intent, you know, persons in, in that moment. But, uh, but David says the Lord's anointed. And it starts to unveil this idea for us. It's, uh, I think Tim Keller once said, it's hard to love those we think we're better than. It's really, really hard. If you think you're better than someone, you're just not going to love them. You can't. It's, it's uh, almost impossible. You're going to look down on them. You're going to condescend them. Um, but you're 
probably not going to love them because love comes underneath um, and love puts them first. The gospel of Jesus Christ reveals and levels and helps us to stop comparing and climbing. And then it becomes easier to start to love our enemies because we know God loves them and we know that we're no better. Deep down, we start to know that. Like, really, we don't just say it. We really deep down know that we're no better than the worst of people. And the gospel starts to make us realize, oh, actually, we're just as, like, I'm the worst uh, inside. And God has been good to me. So maybe, just maybe, I can start to be good uh, to other people with, with his strength and with that way of thinking. So if God has forgiven us greater things, then it becomes possible to extend it. Uh, I was talking about this with uh, the other pastors this past week, and we were kind of all just basically saying, you know, societally speaking, um, I'll start there, but societally speaking, like, if this isn't, like, the need of the hour, um, like, we, we don't know what, what is. Uh, we, we are such, uh, the word, the, phrase, the um, image I got was, um, we are such a siloed people. Uh, so silo just meaning like we're all in our own little silos, kind of, and, and the silos are super specific, and, um, and, and we're at the top of them kind of glaring at other people are in different silos. Um, and again, it's a societal thing, but it's in the church as well. And we find these little narrow lanes to run in, and we glare at people who dare run into a different one than, than, than we do. I remember um, I lived in New York City for a summer when I was in college, and doing ministry with crew, and um, we, I lived in Queens. And the first day there, there's someone who lives there takes us out and gives us a tour of the neighborhood. It's very diverse, as you might expect. Maybe some of you know, because you've been there, or even lived there. Um, but I remember one of the things he said was um, being, something about this city that's kind of unique, and maybe all cities that are relatively big to a degree, but he says, this city though, um, if, if you want to find a very, very, very niche group of people, who are your people, you can find them. If you want to find a group of Romanian, vegetarian, humanistic, anti-facial hair, libertarian jugglers who insist on wearing shorts in winter and who are adamantly against the color blue, you can find them. And that, those are my words, but it's something else. It's something like that, like he said. Um, and I remember hearing that and thinking, well, that's kind of cool, um, but I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure if that's really cool anymore. I mean, on one level, it's good to find friends, right? We all need our people. And friendships usually start with finding people that are you're alike in some ways. Or I have that hobby too, or I've seen that movie too and love this genre. And, you know, this is also my profession or, or blah, blah, blah. And friendships kind of start to form around that. That's, that's a good thing. But what I just said, what that guy said to me uh, when I was in college and gave, gave me that tour, like, that's extreme. That's like you know, um, that's, a that's a hundred on the scale of, you know, of, of ten. Uh, and, and whereas, like, just finding people that you're alike is very good, good and, but it's menial, smaller thing. You know, but the, the dark side of being siloed, though, is that we think everyone else is wrong and we're right. And we become more threatened and offended by the slightest of disagreements, theologically or otherwise. And then it leads, or can lead, to having a really hard time looking over sins. Um, and then we're in a bad spot. It's a hard spot to be. Not like, you know, we can't get out of it. It's just that it's a, very, it's a dark spot. Um, 1 Corinthians uh, 6 says, and Paul's actually writing this to Christians who are suing one another. And he says, here's an idea. Uh, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated and be okay with that? 
Uh, it's one of the most, um, I, I think, like for our culture right now, this is one of the most backwards things. Uh, the Bible loves doing this, of course. It's always this way. Uh, but this is like, this is the kind of way of thinking it, it proposes for Christians. Why not lose? Why not lose and be okay with that? Why not take it in the teeth uh, for the sake of letting someone else win who's even trying to sue you or is even your enemy? And why not stop the constant charade of always needing to be right? You ever thought about that? Again, if this feels impossible to do, um, it is. It is. You, you can't just tell yourself or others to do this. Paul is not just telling people to do it. This is not just a post-it note he wrote this on and gave it to the Corinthian church. This is a part of a longer letter. And it's an outflow of the gospel. It's an outflow of understanding what God has been like to you, of understanding grace. It's an outflow of living life with other Christians in a mutually loving and submissive and understanding way. Uh, it's, it's the way of forgiveness and deference and bragging about our weaknesses and our losses, and, and which, again, paradoxically leads to more friendship uh, than the other way around. And for more on that, uh, we see then, back to 1 Samuel 24, we see David is not just a picture of a grace-centered Christian, though he is. Uh, he's even more a picture of Jesus himself. And this is really where the power to live in a reconciled way with our enemies comes from. It's to simply ask the question, what has God done for me? I don't know if you guys have thought about that recently, you know, or ever. Um, maybe it's been a while. But what has God, the God of the Bible, what has he done for me? Uh, not just once, 2,000 years ago, although that's ultimate, but I mean just every day. Uh, what is he like? What's his posture towards me? What has he done? Have you dwelt on that lately? The nice thing about this story is that David, the person of David being one of Jesus' ancestors, gives us a reminder, gives us a pointer, and again, a foreshadowing. So to look at this whole story then through a divine lens is to kind of shift it around. Again, kind of like that kaleidoscope um, you know, or a, a facet of a diamond. We twist it a bit and we see it's the same diamond, same story. There's just another way to look at it. And another way to look at it is to say that David is a picture of Jesus. And we're, we're, Saul is more like, we're like, more like Saul in this story then. And there's three angles on this uh, we're going to look at. Uh, one is the location, two is the restraint, and three is um, the reconciliation. Uh, and again, the big question then being, how are we pointed ahead uh, to Jesus here? And then to come back to the question we were just looking at, where does the power to live in an enemy-loving way ultimately come from? Is that, that's actually where we're going to kind of circle back to, but have that in mind as we read, because this is really it. It's not just saying do it. It's good to do it. Christians should do it. Um, that's fine, of course, to talk in those terms. But there's less power. And the Bible actually isn't just saying that. It's saying, actually, Jesus has done it first, which means we're the enemy. And we've been loved to hell and back by him. It's insane that that's the case. Uh, but God treats his enemies with amazing restraint and kindness. And when we dwell on that and know that, it starts even just a little bit to become easier to show grace to people who we formerly really, really did not like. All right, so first is the location. As we look at this story, um, expecting to find Christ here uh, and looking at it symbolically, um, the location's important. Um, it's not a random historical detail for Samuel to include the location name 
of, so first En Gedi, which means um, spring of a young goat, but also the crags of the wild goats. I, that's, I just love that. I don't know why I love that, but uh, it's, that's where they were. Crags of the wild goats. It sounds like a, um, like a Western flick or something, but, um, but that's where all this occurred. And it's not, again, the Bible is not just saying this matter-of-factly, it's saying it spiritually. And if you think about this, then, if this is all happening to David in a cave or a crag, uh, in, in this goat-named theological area, uh, this becomes a type of literary device to make David kind of look like a goat, which, when tied to Jesus, shapes for us what the gospel would later come to be, which is Jesus becoming a scapegoat for us. When our sins would be laid on his head and he would be buried to carry our sins far, far away into the crags of the earth, and then who would um, kind of rise up to be a spring of life for all who would uh, quench their thirst on the water that pours from his side. All right, so that, that's kind of what we start to see here is this, this uh, scapegoaty uh, kind of thing here just by way of location, which um, if that's new to you, look for that when you read the Bible. The Bible's um, location teaches theology. Where things happen is extremely important. We talked about Bethlehem already uh, in, um, in this series, how Jesus died outside the city, not in. We've talked about like the etymology of place names, including En Gedi here, but other things. like th- Those things really matter theologically. They're not just history. So when you look at that, ask yourself, where's the gospel in that word or in this concept or what's being imaged here? And when you do that here, you see David, ultimately Christ, but David as a type of scapegoat. All right, then there's the restraint, which is the big thing. Um, I think there are two voices in this passage in the heat of the tension of the moment. Um, and we'll come back to the, the punching bag thing in a second. But there's one voice of David's friends saying, kill. And there's one of David himself saying, save. And I love this because it mirrors perfectly the two voices of Scripture, which is law and grace. Uh, law says, kill. Uh, because we can't keep it. It says judge or punish uh, or dole out something in response to their actions. But grace says give in spite of. Uh, Grace says give in spite of their inabilities, uh, in in spite of their falls. Give and give and give to the undeserving and even the enemy. Those are the two voices of Scripture. And what I like about this then is you see David rebuking the first word. Uh, like Jesus would later rebuke the word of kill them. Kill them. They deserve it. Even though that voice isn't wrong, we do deserve hell. But Jesus rebukes it for the sake of the better word of grace. Grace is a better word. It's, it benefits us, uh, not crushes us. And in order to speak that word, here's another twist. He takes on the killing himself. And, and we see it in two places here. There's almost kind of two kinds of punching bags. Uh, first in David, who is innocent, yet he's essentially in this story, he's lying down in the equivalent of a dirty gas station restroom while Saul relieves himself uh, a few feet away. Um, Jesus, too, later in the story, was laid out in the worst and most unlikely of places, showing us restraint. He was even born in a, in a, um, and laid in a, a feeding trough for animals. Um, but showing us restraint and taking on the, the sin himself. And we also see it in Saul's robe, uh, which is another picture of that same displaced-in-our-favor justice. Because if you think about it, David actually did harm something. 
in this story, right? It just wasn't Saul. He harmed the robe. Something was harmed instead of Saul. And so the theology here is Jesus was harmed instead of you, in love for you. David saying, uh, look at this piece of robe, Saul, sounds a lot like Jesus saying, look at my scars, Thomas, after his resurrection. Uh, The Bible means for us to look at things that were harmed instead of someone else and then to draw a line between those stories and Jesus for our benefit. Someone should have been harmed here, but they scandalously weren't. And this thing or person was harmed instead. Those stories are echoes of Christ ahead of time. Uh, It's like backward. they send reverberations backwards that Jesus does, backwards into history, and helps us to understand this is why they're here. Saul's robe was torn like Jesus would be. Saul's robe took the brunt so Saul could live and be spared, just like David himself here. And then you see the reconciliation, uh, which is, um, again, I was mentioning this before with Saul, the life change here. Uh, You see everything change. Everything changes with these two in just a matter of a moment. It's crazy. Um, But I think there's, there's tons of rich theology in there for us and hope for those of us who have just a really hard time thinking in these terms and who have enemies and who have tons of relational conflict, and who just aren't seeing any change at all, Christian or not, uh, there's tons of hope here for the light switch moment that, that this was. And so, but to walk through it, so as David uh, comes up out of the cave, um, and really then, the idea is, that as Jesus comes up out of the tomb, and, and honestly, if we were to add other stories here, like Daniel coming up out of the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fiery furnace, Joseph out of the well in Genesis, or Jonah out of the fish. After all these resurrection-like moments of the Old Testament happen, we see salvation, we see deliverance, and we see reconciliation. Uh, Jesus' death and resurrection do something for us. They don't just happen. They benefit us, and they change us. And that's what we see in Saul. Saul, then, as a picture of us, becomes this completely floored and changed man. Uh, I I think this is a microcosm of what we may call a legitimate New Testament conversion narrative. Again, going from seethingly angry and murderous to one who wept with joy and felt like conviction over his sin and clearly a man moved by the grace of David. Because if you ask, like, what stood in between the old Saul and the new Saul? Right? That's the question. What happened to make this shift? What stood in between murderous Saul and kind Saul, uh, humble Saul, prideful Saul and humble Saul, murderous Saul and loving Saul? What happened in between that in the story? The answer is it was David saying, look a corner of your robe. Look in my hands. I could have killed you, but I didn't. So Saul's arch enemy, who in one sense had every right to defend himself, a giant slayer, David, held back. Even as his friends urged him to kill him, David held back. This kind of grace just changes a person. Uh, Most of you in the room, I'm guessing are Christians, uh, you've had this to some degree. Grace has moved you. Uh, You've seen beauty in it. Uh, It shapes how you view the God of the Bible and um, and it, it continually is 
does that. Hopefully, it's continually meant to do that. Some of you may have never come to this, turn, uh, this place yet of seeing the Bible this way and seeing God this way uh, because maybe you never had it like a human being do this to you. But what stands in between this change is grace. Uh, it's not someone saying, Saul, you need to stop being a murderer. Try harder to be kind. That's not what stands in between the change. It's David showing him love and grace. That's what truly changes us. It's the gospel, not law, not rules, not do this and thens. And so then look at how reconciliatory this becomes. It says, um, it says uh, or first of all, how reflective. Like, like he says, when a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? And then um, reconciliatory when it says, David gave his promise, his oath to Saul. Um, it reminds me of Hebrews 6 where it says, People swear by something greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, that's us Christians, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that we who have fled to take, the hope, take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. All right, so basically what I think this is saying uh, is this. God swears by himself that he will bless us. He swears by himself he'll save us and bring us into a kingdom unscathed and fully reconciled. It's an anchor for the soul. So when the storms come, and they will, we have his promises, not our promises to him, but his to us to hold on to. His grace has put an end to all arguments. That is, there's no more discussion or debate. There's no need to defend ourselves or speak up about what we've done. There's no need to compromise with God. Even though we were his enemies, God has erased our sin by being born onto the floor of a gas station restroom and torn like Saul's robe on the cross that all who believe in him might be saved. And I'll end with um, what David says to Saul, which I think is a wonderfully reflective and theological question for us to kind of leave with, and that is, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? See, that is to say, why do we listen when men say, God is disappointed with you? Why do we entertain that theology? Why do we listen when people say, God intends to harm you? Why do we listen when someone says, oh, God just tolerates you? or expects the world of you. He expects you to bleed for him. Why do we listen when, when people say God is going to judge you based on what you do? He saves you by grace, but he's going to ultimately judge you on, on what, how you live your life after you convert to Christianity. Why do we listen to that theology? Why do we listen when people say you're saved by grace, but you stay saved by works? Why do we listen to that? It's just a great question. And we do. We all do. But this is the same thing as saying that. If this is a picture, if David is a picture of Christ and this is a picture of gospel ahead of time, this is a great, great question uh, to leave with. Why do we entertain bad theology when God all along is doing this? He, he's swearing by himself. That, that, that is to say, we say, I swear in my mother's grave or I swear in a Bible, like in a, in a courtroom. Because we, we swear on things that are above us or bigger than us. But because there's nothing above God, he can't do that. So he swears on himself to say, I will bless you when you believe in me. 
I will not curse you. I will bless you. I will not push you away. I'll bring you home. If you trust in my son's shed blood, my own sacrificial love given to you, I, I promise I will never leave you or forsake you. Um, he's, he's not drawing us or pushing us to ourselves or asking the world of us. He's saying, believe in me who, who's, taken, who's overcome the world for you, who's sp- spoken a better word of grace to you that actually has the power to change your heart and um, actually has the power to, love, to lead us to love our enemies because we, the enemies, enemies of God, have been shown kindness by the God of the universe. It's insanely radical and scandalous, but it's actually true. All this stuff is actually true, and it's worthy of our trust and our reflection and our belief and every bit of hope that we can just muster to cast on God and not our promises in ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. Uh, thank you for the story that it is, uh, but more, more than that, we thank you for the story of all of Scripture that is a story of suffering. Um, we suffer as human beings all the time uh, for good and bad reasons we suffer, but you suffered at the highest level when you came to become a scapegoat. You came to the ultimate crags of the wild goats, which is basically another word for Calvary ahead of time, where uh, you bore sins and you became like the sacrifices of old, a place for sin to go, our sins to go, the sins of the world to go, um, so it wouldn't stay in us or stay on us or stay in between us and God. And Jesus, we thank you for fulfilling that story and through that, showing us love and restraint and grace and kindness. Um, it, it's just impossible. It, feel, it can feel so impossible for us to love our enemies, uh, and yet part of the point is it is. Uh, we've never really done that that well, but you've done it perfectly. And when we start to understand that and come to terms with that, that's when things maybe do start to change a bit in our lives and heart, where we can look at people in a new light um, and not compare ourselves and not silo off so much and not be so offended and threatened by difference, um, but instead seeing ourselves at the bottom and putting others first because that's what you did. You came all the way down to our level to become like us, to be born Uh, in the worst of ways, to die in the worst of ways, so that there's nothing else to do except to believe. There's no threat that can befall us. There's no curse. There's no hell. There's just hope that Jesus already went to those things and bore those things for us. And so if we cling to him, uh, there's, there's hope for sinners like us. So God, thank you for saving us, for paying the highest price Uh, to bring us home to you. And we just pray for the rest of our day and well, just mourning here. Help us to sing uh, in in songs of thanksgiving to you uh, before we leave today. In Christ we pray.